Today's reading is 1 Corinthians 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then, I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else, who is now put in the position of an inquirer, Say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying. You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. 
if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet, or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. This is God's word. Don't worry, Rowan did not break the Bible by speaking just then. We saw in 1 Corinthians 11 that women are to speak in church. He's making a specific point here. Don't worry. Uh, if we don't get it to it this week um, or next week, we're having question time afterwards where we're going to look at uh, spiritual gifts, in particular look at all of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, any questions you want. So if you can stay around afterwards, uh, then you can, uh, you can bring your burning questions then and it is... We're a church that encourages the ministry of women. I want to make that very clear, um, because we're probably not going to get to those verses tonight. Um, But seeing as they've just been read, and I could hear the gasps, I thought I'd better say something. Let's pray. We have lots of work to do. Our Father God, we thank you that you are a speaking God. And we pray tonight that we would be a listening people. That we would honour you now with uh, minds that think hard, that wrestle, and with hearts that recognise truth. Amen. Now, if I told you that the Spirit of God was going to descend in power on this meeting tonight, what would you expect to happen? At this point, I really should have queued up a smoke machine or something. (laughs) You see, because I guess for most of us in our minds, we imagine flashy, miraculous, impressive things would go on. We struggle to, to think... The Spirit comes in power on us and it'll look like this, ordinary. It's just the way our sinful minds think. We're very like the Corinthians in that we can own, we tend to see God where there is, wow, no human explanation for anything. It's got to be impressive. It's got to be miraculous. Otherwise, it's not God. But according to 1 Corinthians 14, it is in the ordinary things It is in the ordinary things so often that we see the powerful spirit of God. Okay, how do we get there from this text? Let's have a look. Um, So verses 1 to 5. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more, to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater 
than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, Paul is picking up here where he left off at the end of chapter 12. Do you see? Uh, uh, Now, verse 31 of chapter 12. Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. And then 14.1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. He's picking up his argument. His whole point, in one sense, is is to get to this bit here. Uh, But he had to address... um, chapter 13 before he could get into their confusion over tongues and prophecy and which is more important for the church you see the Corinthians and I guess we're pretty similar they judge how spiritual a person is by how spectacular their gifts are how amazing and impressive what they do in churches and for them it all boils down to tongues in the Corinthian church the spiritual elite are those who who speak out in in foreign miraculous languages they are the really spiritual ones rather than those who, who prophesy, who speak in, in their own native language. And those who did speak in tongues, they saw themselves as the, the most spiritual people in the church. And they saw their gift as the most essential thing to a church meeting and to a fulfilled spiritual life. And they, to be honest, looked down on everybody else. Those who didn't speak in tongues... Well, they thought it was just a divisive gift that was clearly just making some people proud and should probably just be stopped altogether. And so both groups are basically saying, Paul, we want you to uh, affirm that tongues are the most important thing. We want you to ban them completely. And Paul won't do either. Paul's answer actually to the church comes in verse 5. He says, actually, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Actually, plain English, well, plain Greek prophecy in language people can understand is more useful to the church, is greater than ecstatic, amazing, miraculous languages that people cannot understand. But he doesn't say that in 1231, because if he does that, well, he just takes one load of proud show-offs at Corinth and humbles them, and instead elevates another load of proud show-offs at Corinth. This time, those who prophesy wander around thinking like they're the kings of the church. And so he broke off his argument in 1231 to teach them that the ultimate hallmark of the presence of the Spirit of God in a church is that we love each other. Is that we love each other with a love like Christ, a humble, other person-centered, sacrificial, working out in the practicalities of everyday life, sort of a extensive, persistent, consistent love. It is not the only thing that tells you the spirit of God is in a church but it is perhaps the key thing radical self-denying life-changing love and for a church that's fixed on razzmatazz it is most definitely the most the, the thing they really need to hear it is by far and away the most important thing for this church in Corinth to hear Jonathan Edwards the great theologian said it is love that makes the church like heaven not gifts It is love that makes the church like heaven, not gifts. And having established that, that nothing matters unless you're acting in love, Paul returns to his argument to say, okay, pursue spiritual gifts, especially the greater gifts, uh, like the gift of prophecy, as he's going to say. So it's it's like he's saying, look, I always wanted to tell you to drive to Bristol, but first I had to tell you, you need to obey the highway code. There's no point in me telling you to drive to Bristol until you work out you have to obey the speed limit. You'll never get there. You'll cause a crash. So chapter 13 is crucial. You cannot tell people what the greatest spiritual gifts are until people get that without love there is nothing of any value. 
But having established that, he focuses on the two spiritual gifts that seem to be causing the most friction and trouble at Corinth, tongues and prophecy. At which point, we probably need to just step back for a moment before we get into the passage and say, okay, well, well, just what is, what are you talking about? What is tongues and what is prophecy? Tongues. And tongue is just the Greek word. You'll see in the, um, in the, in the footnote, I think, there, you'll see it's just the Greek word for language, glossolalia, that's all. And in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit descended on the church for the first time and God's people after the resurrection of Jesus were filled with the Holy Spirit, which is to say God himself came to live in his people, what happened was they were enabled miraculously to speak foreign languages and they start declaring the glory of God in a whole load of different languages to all the people gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And elsewhere in the book of Acts, when people become Christians, quite often you hear that uh, as they become a Christian, they're filled with the Spirit and they speak in tongues. Now, why is that happening in Acts? It's not surprising really, actually, because uh, in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus says this, You will receive power, he says to his followers, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to empower the church to stop sitting in church and to go out and tell everybody the good news about Jesus. And I, think, I just don't think we can get our minds around how parochial and narrow their focus was. Old Testament Judaism at the time of Jesus was so narrow in its focus and so bunkered and so much about us and we are the chosen people. That God had to do something radical and miraculous and extraordinary to wake them up to the fact that the message of Jesus is for everyone. And so he miraculously enables them to speak a whole load of languages. So when they start talking about Jesus, they find they're speaking in French and Italian and Swahili and Khosa. And he's, get the idea, the, the aim is that you go tell other people. So that's why you've got a lot of uh, talk in the book of Acts about tongues. It's so that God's people in the book of Acts will go out to the nations. And uh, actually, the, the word, as I say, is languages. And in Acts, it is uh, it's speaking foreign languages. Now, this uh, languages, tongues, are only mentioned in one other place in the New Testament, which is this section of uh, 1 Corinthians, verse, uh, chapters 12 to 14. They're never mentioned by Jesus, and they're never listed as an essential to a Christian, or a proof of conversion, or being needed for your fulfillment in your spiritual life. Now you may be aware that um, although uh, the book of Acts talks about tongues as foreign languages, accepted foreign languages, uh, most people when they talk about it, most Christians, um, they're, they're talking about something else, a sort of heavenly language. And they get that really from 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. Do you see that? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels... Look, the truth is, we don't really know what's being referred to in 1 Corinthians. In Acts, it's foreign languages. In 1 Corinthians, there's a hint that maybe it's something more. What, what we do know, three things that we definitely know about tongues. They're miraculously enabled by the Holy Spirit. It's a form of speech that other people and the speaker themselves cannot normally understand. And thirdly, it's interpreted by the Holy Spirit so that... Uh, God provides interpretation so that people can understand. So it is a, it's a language that's uh, provided by the Holy Spirit that can't be understood normally and that God provides the interpretations. There you go. Prophecy. Now prophecy is a hugely broad term in the Bible. It covers all sorts of communication from God and about God. So it is both people 
explaining God has said this and people talking about God. Both are, uh, the word prophecy covers both in Scripture. Uh, it includes predictions about the future. So in Acts 11 and in Acts um, 21.10, there's a chap called Agabus, who's a prophet in the New Testament, who tells what will happen in the future. And it includes uh, preaching the gospel and speaking in tongues in Acts 2. Both are described really as prophecy, interestingly, in Acts 2.16-17. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, prophecy is authoritative. This is the word of the Lord. You don't discuss it, you do it. And so if a prophet proves false, a liar, it's a serious business because they're putting themselves in God's place. And so Deuteronomy 18, if, they are, if what they say doesn't happen, they should be put to death because they're um, deceiving. It's different in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's not authoritative in the same way. So Paul ignores Agabus' prophecy in Acts 21 and goes to Jerusalem. Uh, And then in uh, verse 29 of our passage that we just had read, um, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. In other words, it's not immediately authoritative. The church leadership need to weigh it, to examine it, to study it, decide, do we really think this is right or not? So it is slightly different from what was happening in the Old Testament. So... What's prophecy? What can we say for certain? It is a speech enabled by the Holy Spirit, verse 3, for strengthening, encouraging, and comfort of the church. It was not authoritative until it had been weighed and endorsed by the leadership of the church, and it was in language that people could understand. Get it? So it's speech enabled by the Holy Spirit for the strengthening, encouragement, and comfort of the church. It's only authoritative on the church once the, the... the leaders of the church have endorsed it, and it's in language that anybody can understand. Okay, right. Uh, possibly it involves the application of the Bible to particular situations. A number of people um, have made this argument for various reasons, that it, that, that may be what in particular is being spoken about here. But um, there are various arguments going around. I can recommend you all sorts of books if you're interested that's probably as much as we can say definitely so tongues languages you can't understand prophecy language you can understand both enabled by the holy spirit um let's get on acts uh, sorry two one corinthians 14 we'll get there eventually uh, verses one to five why is paul keen to stress prophecy is better than tongues Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Now that is odd. It is better to speak to each other than to speak to God. Doesn't make much sense to us, does it? But do you recall how Paul summarized the whole point of spiritual gifts in 12.7? Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Spiritual gifts are not for for showing off or self-fulfillment, but for serving others in sacrificial love. That key word edify or build up appears uh, in verses 4 and 5. The whole aim of meeting together is to glorify God by building one another up. In other words, you and I become more like Jesus through meeting together than we could ever do on our own. I become more like Jesus because I receive your ministry on a Sunday. I could never become, be, grow as mature as a Christian if I didn't meet with you guys on a Sunday. That's his point. And we saw that last week. Uh, but Paul's conclusion for the Corinthians from that is they should prefer prophecy over tongues. Because when you speak in a tongue, 
Others cannot understand you, so you are edified, but no one else is. But if you prophesy, the rest of us can be strengthened, because we can understand what you're saying about God. Now, verses uh, 6 to 19 then expand on this. And the simple point that Paul makes is that that edification can only take place if we understand one another. And that's why prophecy is so important. So two points really from that. Meaning matters and minds matter. Meaning matters and minds matter. Uh, Verses 6 to 12. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts that build, uh, gifts of the spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Verse six states the case. I can only be of use to you if I speak in a way that you understand, basically. I cannot be useful to you if you cannot understand my language. There's no point in me preaching in Swahili for all but one or two of you in this room. And notice that he appeals to common sense in 7 to 11. He says, look, it's like that. And, you know, you expect, if you can't understand the different notes in an instrument, you know, how are they supposed to, to play together? God works through means. God works through means. He's saying, don't be so super spiritual. It's, it should be obvious to you that you need to be able to understand one another. Don't become mystical thinking there's some sort of magic going on that somehow I'll be edified just by you speaking things I don't understand because you're in spiritual raptures and somehow it'll, you know, the, the rapture spirit things will, will magically make me feel more holy. It doesn't work like that. God works through means. Jesus was the word made flesh. And other than the few thousand people who met him physically while he was here on earth before his resurrection, every other Christian in all of history, all around the world, has met Jesus and knows him and has a relationship with him as we come to know his words recorded in the Bible. We meet Jesus not in a a sort of mystical experience where I I commune with my spirit to, to Jesus somewhere out there. But we meet Jesus in a spiritual experience as we understand the words of the Bible. The words that tell us uh, what he said, what he did in his life, his death and his resurrection and what it means for you and me today. That's how it works with the gospel, the central point of Christianity, that God works through, through our understanding, through means. And it's how it works for everything else. So we, uh, we looked at the Lord's Supper a couple of weeks ago. Eating the bread and the wine is of no spiritual value to you whatsoever. None whatsoever, unless it's accompanied by understanding of what is going on. It only aids you if it is, if it is a going alongside a faith in what it means. The death of Jesus. Okay, let's press into 13 to 17 before we think about that a bit more. But his first point is, meaning matters. If you don't understand it, you can't actually get any spiritual benefit from it. Then 13 to 17. 
your mind matters. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I'll sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else, who's now put in the position of an inquirer, say, Amen to your thanksgiving, since they have no idea what you're saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. Again, notice that the the last verse of this section, as in verse 12, is the word build up or edify. That's the aim. The church needs to be built up. And the church won't be built up if it is only our spirits that are engaged. Your minds need to be alert. You've got to get your brain in gear. And that's counterintuitive to us because we're told faith is the enemy of reason we're told that religion is about ignoring your brain you know should be a box at the door of church and leave your brain here and then go in and enjoy your faith thing but right here paul says you will never grow to maturity unless your mind as well as your spirit is active and engaged when you're in church Uh, romans 12 2 says our lives will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's when you learn to think differently that you start to live differently. It's like that throughout the Bible. Now, I need to be careful. It would be easy uh, to lurch into a sort of rationalistic direction whereby we become the sort of church where the one who is, gives the most sharp academic analytical answers in the Bible study must be closest to God. It's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. But Paul is writing to address the mistakes of a particular church. And this church experiences everything. An ecstatic switch off your mind, commune directly with God's sort of nonsense is what's characterizing their church services. So to that church, Paul says, there is no point in that unless your minds are engaged. Use your brains. God gave you a brain to think about him and to understand his word. I suspect others probably do need to hear that Christianity is not just a dry set of teachings like some philosophy. It's it's a relationship, a genuine, dynamic, spiritual encounter with the living God. But that's not what the Corinthians need to hear. And so he concludes, uh, verses 18 to 19, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So different from us. We, we swing like pendulums. You know, there's a, there's, people are going way overboard and tongue speaking over here. So tongue speaking is of the devil. You don't get that with Paul. He says, actually, I speak in tongues plenty. But you know what? In church, I care about the people around me so much. I would rather speak five words in an intelligible language than actually this is the largest number you've got in Greek. So it's the equivalent of a trillion, a septillion, whatever the mathematicians here can imagine. So there are no, there's no number of unintelligible words that could ever be more useful in church than five words people can understand. Extraordinary. Why is that the case? Because our aim, and your aim if you're a Christian here, is not you and your relationship with God. It is us and ours. And we grow to maturity as we grow together. And so we want to be understood. 
Now, Paul's concern aren't just internal, though, as we turn to verses 20 to 25. Uh, He's also desperately concerned for the welfare of those who wouldn't yet call themselves Christians. So in 20 to 25, he, he says, not only can we not build people up without understanding, we can't reach out without understanding. So 20 to 25. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. In other words, be innocent of it. But in your thinking, be adults, be mature. In the law, it's written with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, while they are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, notice that Paul expects there to be um, non-Christians in church. So if you're here, uh, you may not, not everything in church probably makes sense. That's fine. But you are very, very welcome. You're hugely welcome. You have a right to be here. We expect you here and we're delighted that you're here. I'll tell you his point and then we'll see how he gets there. His point is very simple in these verses. His point is that when people who are not yet Christians come to church and cannot understand what is said we might as well slam the door in their faces because we're that much used to them. If they cannot understand what's being said, then effectively it's like we're judging them and we're saying, we don't want you to come to know God, so we don't want you to understand what's going on here. And we could slam the door in your face, but we're too polite to do that, so we're just going to speak in ways you don't understand. That's what he says. But if we speak in ways people can understand, then they have a chance of understanding the gospel and putting their trust in Jesus and finding eternal life and salvation. Now the quotation that he uses to show this is from uh, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. He's a prophet writing just over 700 years before the, the life of Jesus. And the leadership of Israel have refused God's clear words of warning. And they've turned their backs on God. So God's judgment on them is that they're being invaded by Assyria. And he says, you won't listen to me speaking clearly. Well, you'll just hear foreign voices from now. You will not understand what is spoken. You will hear words that don't make any sense to you. Because you've refused the words that do make sense. It's a sign of his judgment on them that they hear Assyrian. And likewise, if someone wanders in here and everyone is praying in tongues, in languages that they cannot understand, they are just going to think, you lot are nuts. Absolutely cuckoo. What else are they supposed to say? They certainly can't put their trust in Jesus, can they? Because, well, they haven't heard his name and they've heard nothing they understand about him. So how are they supposed to put their trust in him? It really would be like us slamming the door in their face. It would be like us as a church judging our city, saying we no longer care about the people of this city coming to know Jesus. Now the most extreme version of this is uh, meetings which are characterized by tongues, where everybody speaks in languages people can't understand. But obviously there are implications for how we do everything to do with church. We don't want to chase after everything of culture and ignore the truth of the Bible. But we do want to present the truth of the Bible in a way which makes sense and is understandable to to people who aren't yet part of church. 
You see, verses 24 to 25, if people do come in, what we want them to do is to hear things they understand, plain English, so their sins are exposed and they can repent and exclaim, God is really among you and worship him. Now, I don't think what's going on there is some poor visitor wanders in a little bit late, shuffles at the side, and Egbert over there stands up and says, I know what you did last summer. <laughs> the sins of my heart have been exposed. I don't think that's, I mean, that really would, partly because it says here everybody's prophesying. Um, Paul will go on to say it should only be two or three, but he's certainly not saying what, what would really be helpful for unbelievers is if somebody walks in and the entire church turns around and starts pointing out all their sins with supernatural knowledge. I just don't think that's what's going on. We never hear that going on in the Bible, and we don't hear it in church history either. And that sounds just nuts and abusive. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what's happening is he's saying people come in and they can hear the truth of God being applied to human lives. I don't think it's to theirs. They're overhearing in these verses, do you see? It's not directed to them so much, I don't think. But they're overhearing uh, Christians uh, preaching the word, prophesying, talking to one another, applying the word of God into our lives. And they are awestruck by the penetrating truth of God's word into the lives of his people. And they recognize God is among you. And they can do that because they can understand what's being said. Because it's in English or Greek back then. What does this mean for us? Other than keep having church services in English and um, we just updated the Bible translations and I could kind of use the golden crowbar and say here's a reason to make sure that uh, we can still understand it because English language has changed since 1984 or whatever. Anyway, we're not going to do that because that would be the golden crowbar. Uh, you can ask us about the Bible translations another time. Um, I, want to, I want to come to the Bible which might seem like Okay, you said you weren't going to use a golden crowbar. Where's the Bible in this passage? <laughs> how, can you, uh, how can you end up going to the Bible? Well, here's the point. Paul's big point here is church should be focused on the clear proclamation of God's word. At the heart of church, we want to do whatever it takes so that people can hear God clearly. That's what he's saying. And at this point in the life of church, uh, in 1 Corinthians, we are very, very early on, sort of AD 53 to 55 in the life of the church. They have none of the Gospels giving them the details of the life and teaching of Jesus. They have very, very few of the New Testament letters. And so they're reliant on on God's immediate revelation, tongues and prophecy, to, to have any of the truth about him. But interestingly, as more and more of the New Testament letters and then the Gospels are written, you find less and less emphasis in the later New Testament works on things like tongues and prophecy. In fact, tongues doesn't appear anywhere else, and there's much less emphasis on prophecy. Instead, the emphasis is where? It is on the scriptures, on hearing God speak in his word, on passing on the deposit of teaching that we find in the scriptures. So Hebrews chapters 1 to 4 are all about the church needs to focus on the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17 encourages the church to focus on the scriptures. 2 Peter 3, 16 does the same. Titus does the same. The later books of the New Testament focus on, on scripture. Now Paul wants church meetings to focus on hearing God clearly. That's Paul's aim. And we hear God clearly 
We know we hear God when we've got one of these in our hands. But I suspect if we did, a, if we did a, an anonymous poll, what would you prefer, to have a Bible or to have services like Corinth where there's immediate revelation being given? Even those of us who know the right answer, I think most of us deep down think, that would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? You know, it's not just me, is it? You see, we, and I think we've got, a, we've got an odd thinking on this. I remember um, when I was at school, uh, it was a time when Australia was very cool because we all watched Neighbours. It was that long ago. Uh, and uh, we had this, and this Australian exchange teacher came to our, um, our boarding house at boarding school. And he was the coolest man ever because he had a mullet hairdo like Jason Donovan. Um, yeah, that was cool. PJ, back then you'd have had one of those. It was, it was the equivalent of a beard. It was, uh, it was very, very cool. Uh, and um, the... And he, uh, he was a Christian, and he, was, uh, and he started telling lots of us about Jesus, and it was really exciting. Lots of people became Christians, but he was also saying, you've got to learn to prophesy and speak in tongues, and he was massively onto this. And uh, he was always telling people, that's where the action is. Come, and, uh, come to this meeting, and we're going to teach you all how to speak in tongues. I bumped into him about 20 years later. Thankfully, he'd shaved off the mullet, and, um, he, uh, and he was minister at a church I knew that... Uh, and, and we got chatting and it turned out that he was, no longer, he was no longer big into speaking tongues all the time and prophecy. Instead, he was preaching the Bible every week. And I asked him how this, how this happened. And I said, doesn't that feel like a bit of a downgrade? Because I knew what he used to be like. And he said, he said, mate, it's like going from the smell of food to eating real food. And he said, he said, he said I grew up and it was really exciting, but you never quite knew. Was this dream from God or did I eat too much cheese the night before? Uh, are these... Are these words that people are giving me, are they really from God or is it a human word? You were just never sure. It was immediate, it was exciting, but it was so uncertain. And he said, now I've got God's word. Why would I ever want to trade that in? He was so thrilled that he was, after years of never quite being sure what was what, he now had solid ground, solid food, the word of God. And I wonder whether, in part, our resistance to stuff like that is because we struggle to see the Spirit of God in ordinary things. I think most of us just do. You know, someone coming out, reading the Bible, preaching it, it feels just ordinary. You know, where's the Holy Spirit in that? Like the Corinthians, we struggle to see the extraordinary power of God in ordinary things. But we need to learn to celebrate the extraordinarily ordinary God that we have. And to see him in the mundane, the ordinary and the humble. If we get to uh, next week to 1426 to 39, it's interesting. He says, the sign of the Holy Spirit in your meetings is not people running around wildly, uh, laughing uncontrollably and incapable of standing up. Actually, the sign of the Holy Spirit in your meetings is order and people in their right mind and in control of themselves. But we struggle to see the spirit of God in ordinary things. And so we develop this sort of language of, uh, it's a Bible church, not a spirit church, as if this isn't the word of the spirit. Well, I know it's good to prepare, but we must leave room for the spirit. As if the spirit can't be at work in preparation. Because we just can't imagine he would be involved in the ordinary. It must be spontaneous and wow if it's the spirit. But then again, when you think of it, in Jesus' day, people, they couldn't possibly imagine... He could be God. I mean, he just looks so ordinary. It's like a normal bloke. How can that be God? It could never be a revelation of God. He's, 
five foot ten and he works in carpentry. There's no way that's God. All seemed too ordinary to them. I remember um, a church that I grew up at. There was a guy who, um, there were two incidents. One was um, he, he went to hospital. He was, uh, he was on the prayer team and uh, somebody was very, very ill. They went in. Um, they weren't sure they were going to make it through an operation. He went in before the operation to, to meet with them just before the surgeons came in and prayed over them. And they went into a fit seizure. They flipped off their bed, landed on the floor. The um, uh, emergency team came running in. It was all terribly embarrassing. And, but when they kind of got the person back on the bed again, they were totally healed. Extraordinary. Laid his hands on them, prayed for them, totally healed. Doctors couldn't explain it. Discharged the next day. Everybody could see the Holy Spirit in that. A couple of years later, there was another lady at the church had a horrible trauma that left her um, with uh, deep, deep psychological scars. And she was almost unable to speak for a couple of years. And every week, he would take her out for tea and sit with her. And she would sit in silence for an hour while he read to her. And he did that every week for year after year after year. And the funny thing is, people didn't celebrate the Holy Spirit in that Oh, you can see the Holy Spirit in that miraculous healing. But when you read the Bible and you read of the compassion and love of Jesus, he was just as much present by his spirit in that act of persistent, gracious love as he was in that miraculous healing. But we struggle to see the spirit of God in the ordinary. Like preaching the Bible on a Sunday or looking at the Bible together and prophesying, sharing insights midweek. But maybe the, the word ordinary is, is the wrong word entirely, as verses 24 to 25 remind us. You see, something deeply extraordinary happens as the Bible is explained, as God's word goes out. Here it goes out in a sort of immediate, spontaneous way. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while people are prophesying, they're convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they fall down and worship God, explaining God is really among you. I can remember actually sitting just over there, must be 12 years ago now, hearing an ordinary sermon preached in English. Preached to everybody. It wasn't a particularly amazing sermon, but I tell you what, it was like there was a spotlight on my heart. And, and it was like secret sins of mine were just being addressed in every single phrase. It was like having open heart surgery without anesthetic for 30 minutes. It was horrifically unpleasant. And the most powerful thing, the preacher had no idea, just preaching the Bible. But the Spirit exposed the sins of my heart as the Bible was prophesied, proclaimed. I've been on the other end of that as well, preaching up here and looking out at... (laughs) (laughs) You know, drool swinging, uh, phones being checked and thinking, well, that was a waste of my time. Nobody was even listening. Half the people were asleep. And then you get a couple of emails saying, God did amazing business in my life tonight. And, and they talk about him doing things you never even dreamed of happening, never even prayed for before preaching. But God is at work in extraordinary way through his ordinary means. See, we gather here on a Sunday because we are confident we can know God. Because he's spoken a clear and final word. You and I can have certainty about who God is. About how to find salvation in Jesus. But we gather not just with certainty, but with expectation as well. Because this isn't just the book that the Holy Spirit spoke. These are the words he speaks today 
And all around the world today, people have been gathering and listening to God speak. And he's been changing hearts and transforming lives with his powerful word. And as ordinary as everything has felt tonight, the Holy Spirit is amongst us right now. And he is doing heart surgery and driving away unbelief and leading us to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. He's doing it here and he's doing it now. And so we should rejoice. Let's pray. Our Father, forgive us, we pray, for uh, our, our sinful love of all that's exciting and our refusal and slowness to see your hand in ordinary things. Father, we pray that we would develop a greater sense of expectancy about the ordinary means that you employ. And our Father, we thank you so much that each week as we gather with your word open, your spirit is at work mightily amongst us. And so we pray that we would be filled with expectancy and we pray that we would be filled with excitement And we ask in confidence that we would be changed, Lord, tonight and every night. Amen.